This morning, we're going to continue our study through the five solas. Uh, So what the five solas are, we've talked about the last few weeks, uh, are doctrines or or teachings that have come out of what we know as the Protestant Reformation. I was really hoping to kind of be moving in towards our October 31st date to where next Sunday would be our last week because of uh, my own precautions. We've extended that a week and that's fine. But next Saturday, we said was important for three reasons. Let's see if you can remember the three things we celebrate on October the 31st. The obvious one that everybody knows is... Not my mother-in-law. No, Mickey's birthday is not... My mother's birthday, yes. So Halloween's the easy one. The one that I need you guys to remember for my sake is my mother, her birthday is next Saturday. She'll be turning 29 again, so that's an exciting time for her. Um, we, uh, we celebrate that every year. And then there's a third celebration that often goes overlooked, but is something that we are uh, grateful for, even if we don't know we're grateful for. And that is, it's the anniversary of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. It's a day that a man named Martin Luther went to his church door and nailed 35, or I'm sorry, 95 statements to the door just saying, church, are we sure we're doing things right? And that went uh, in the 1500s equivalent to what we'd say now is viral. Uh, It went all over Europe and the church began to look at itself and try to determine, are we really studying Scripture the way we're supposed to study Scripture? Do we really believe in faith and grace and God's glory and Christ the way we're supposed to look at those things? And so what happened was there was a major shift and break in the church. Up until that time, there was just one unified church, but once it started moving away from Scripture, Martin Luther and several other of these reforming theologians helped start what we now call ourselves as Protestant churches, as opposed to the Catholic Church. Now, there are a million different denominations. We can't even count how many different denominations have come out of this. And As a matter of fact, even as our denomination is Baptist, we realize there's not just Baptist. There are Southern Baptist and Northern Baptist and American Baptist. There's Independent Baptist. There's Free Will Baptist. There's General Baptist. And And then you look at us and you say, well, what kind of Baptist are you? If you're new to our church, you may be wondering, what kind of Baptist are you? We're independent. But here's what's tricky. There is an independent Baptist convention. I don't know whose idea it was to be so independent that you'd form a group together and work together. It's kind of confusing. That's not us. We're not a part of the independent Baptist convention. We just are Baptists. And we can talk more about that uh, another sermon, another time. And, and we just want to study and serve Christ. All of these different denominations, whether it's Baptist or Methodist or, or uh, Episcopalian or Lutheran or whatever it may be, all of them have all sorts of different beliefs, and there's a reason why there's so many. But one thing that almost every Protestant church at least has historically in common are these five truths that we're looking at. And so we looked a few weeks ago at what we called sola scriptura. Sola means alone. That's scripture alone. Scripture alone is our only uh, final authority. Nothing else is more authoritative than scripture. Then we looked last week at sola fide. That is 
faith alone. We are saved based on our faith in Christ and nothing else. Not any work that we do, not, uh, not any amount of scripture reading or church going and attendance we have. We are saved simply through faith in Christ. And this morning, our third sola is sola gratia. That means grace alone. We are saved by grace alone. So if you're looking at that Latin word, you've learned Latin this morning, you've learned what scriptura is, you've learned what fide is, and now you get to learn what gratia is. Just this past week, uh, I was talking to one of the kids, the children that goes to our church, and I said, we're going to learn a new word. And we were talking about uh, a new word in, in an English language, but he said, is it going to be new like uh, you're teaching us on Sunday mornings? Because I don't know what those words mean. I said, no, we're not teaching Latin. Okay, we're teaching English, but now you know Latin, right? Sola gratia, grace alone. I, I think it's no secret that millennials are uh, often targeted as the most entitled generation in all of history. Some of you older people are heading, nodding your heads already, and that's okay. Some of you younger people are going, what, me? No way. How dare you say I'm better than that? And th- that's exactly why they're nodding their heads, right? Um, but here's what I, I've learned. I am barely on the cusp of between millennial and is Gen X before me. I don't even know. I, I'm, I'm in between. So technically, I kind of fit into the millennial category. I'm clinging on to that because that's younger, but I'm probably fitting in another one. Here's what I've studied and learned, though. It doesn't matter whether you're a millennial, a Gen X, whether you're a baby boomer, or whether you're uh, some other category. We all suffer from entitlement of some kind. There's a, a psychological article that came out several years ago that listed nine types of entitlement. Now, not all nine of these, we're we're not going to go over all of them this morning. We don't have time, but I want to share a few of them. And what I found reading through this is, this isn't just a younger generation thing. This is a human condition problem. The first type of entitlement was this. You expect the same rules that apply to others shouldn't apply to you. Now, this is kind of your your basic entitlement idea, what, what millennials get accused of. The rules apply to everyone else, but they don't apply to you, right? Others, others should have to start at the bottom and work their way up, but you should just be bumped up to the top, right? Others should take precautions and do the social distancing and masks, but you don't have to do that. You can be different, right? Entitlement is everybody else has all these, these rules and these guidelines they have to live by, but my case is different and special entitlement. Number two, the way you know you're entitled is if you feel massively put upon when other people ask you for small favors, but you expect that when you ask people for favors, it's no big effort. So someone says, hey, can you help me out with, and you roll your eyes, oh my goodness, I've got so much going on, you don't understand, I don't have time, I couldn't even possibly begin to think about helping in that area, I can't do that. But then when you need help, You just expect everyone to drop what they're doing and run to your aid and start helping. Entitlement. A third one that's listed. You expect other people to be more interested in you and what's on your agenda than you're interested in them and what's on their agenda. In other words, yes, 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 what you have to do is important, but you don't understand my job. You don't understand my work. You don't understand how hard I've had to do things. You don't understand my goals 
And so we end up talking more about ourselves than we do about others. By the way, regardless of where you're putting me in this uh, generational place, this is the one I struggle with. Not that I don't care about others' goals, but I find myself talking a lot about myself. And I have to stop and go, Trey, they don't care about that, <laughs> you know? Um, listen for a little bit and, and hear what people are saying. Uh, fourth one, and we'll kind of stop here. There's, there's several more, but this is one I think we can all relate to. You disregard rules that are tended for everyone's comfort. So, for instance, you go to the movie theater. You sit down in the movie and you see the signs that say, please don't put your feet up on the chair in front of you. And, of course, you don't want anyone else's feet on the back of your chair or in your face, but... You want to stretch out and you want to get comfortable. They just don't understand how long your legs are. They don't understand that you've been on your feet all day long. And by the way, your feet don't really smell that bad anyways. So you prop your feet right up there, even though nobody else should do that. Or, or you see the signs that say, don't pull your cell phone out while the movie's playing. And you get very frustrated when you see the glowing lights all around the room. But what, what, you don't, or what they don't know that you know is that you need to check in on your kid's babysitter. So it's okay for you to have your phone out and be texting and figuring out that everything's going on. Or you're, you're checking into the Facebook to make sure everybody knows that you're on a date with your spouse. That's okay. Nobody else can do that. But for me, they should understand, right? These are entitlement attitudes that we have. By the way, it's not just a younger, older thing. We all kind of have this sense of, of it's about me It's about what I want, and people just don't understand my situation. I get this a lot when it comes to marriage counseling, and it breaks my heart. When people are towards the end of their marriage relationship and are are coming to counseling because they're ready to look for a way out, what I hear all the time is, I know the Bible says stay together and don't get a divorce, but if you only knew the problems I had in my marriage. My problems are different from your problems. By the way, normally I tell people, yes, they are different, but they're still problems, right? We have this idea that my situation is somehow special or different. My situation doesn't apply to the rules. It is outside the box, and everybody else needs to follow along, but me, 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 me. As a church, we need to be countercultural to an entitlement society. A culture that says it's all about me, our church needs to turn that around and say it's not about me. And the only way that we can be a contrast to this entitlement society is to have an attitude of gratefulness and thankfulness. We embrace thankfulness and gratitude because it is different, because we have more to be thankful for than anyone else. So this morning, as we look at grace alone, I want to think less about, less about what we've earned or how special we are or about how wonderful our life is or how different our life is. And I want to think more about what God has done, not because we've deserved it, not because we've earned it, not because we're different, but simply because God is gracious. And I hope that transitions us to be people who are grateful This morning, we're going to read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. So I would encourage you to follow along on the screen or in your copy of God's Word this morning. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 and 10, as we look at grace. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience 
among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Do you notice in these first few verses what Paul is laying out for us here? You were just like the rest of mankind, sinful, wicked, wretched, and unable to do anything on your own. Verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, and because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This morning, as we look at grace and what Paul teaches us about grace, I want to ask the same two questions we've asked for the previous messages in this series. One, we're going to ask, what is grace? And then two, we're going to ask, how do we live it out and apply it to our everyday lives? So our first question is, what is grace? Let's define grace. Let's not leave it to be this churchy word out there that we talk about. Let's try to figure out what Scripture teaches us grace is. When I was growing up in Sunday school or in Bible school, I was taught this definition of grace. Maybe you've heard it. Grace is God's unmerited favor. Have you heard that definition before? God's unmerited favor. Maybe some of you who are good with words listen to that definition and go, oh, that sums it up for me. I know grace well. But as a kid, I went, I only know one of those words. (laughs) I know God. I don't know unmerited, and I I don't really understand favor. That's not a word I use all the time as a kid, right? So let's simplify that definition. Grace certainly is God's unmerited favor. But grace is is simply this. It's the fact that God loves you in spite of the fact that you didn't love him. This is grace. That God loves you in spite of the fact that you didn't love him. There was nothing about you that God looked at and went, okay, I guess I will show favor or love to you because you care about me or you're doing good works or you're doing something positive. No, God loves us in spite of the fact that we didn't love him. If you take notes, jot down this verse to read later. 1 John 4, 19 says, We love because he first loved us. It was Christ who showed love before we did. It was Christ who showed and initiated a relationship. It wasn't us coming and saying, look how good I am. It was Christ who loved us first. So since we didn't do anything to deserve it, we didn't do anything to earn it, it's unmerited or not based on our own love, we learn that grace is a gift. It is a gift. And gifts, believe it or not, are free. You cannot do anything to earn a gift. Now, I I know I'm going to get pushed back already, especially from some of our younger ones, that on December 25th, the, the truth is out there, or maybe the myth is out there, that you have to do all of these good works throughout the year so that Santa will come and bring you Christmas presents. And I get that, right? Behave. You better be nice, not naughty. Get on the good list. All of that's great. 
That's not how Christ's gift works. You don't earn a gift because of your goodness or your badness. You don't earn a gift. You don't pay for a gift. When it's your birthday, the only thing you've done is existed another year. You've done nothing. It's a gift that is given to you. Nobody gives a present and then says, by the way, that was 1999. You can make that check out to Trey Reed. And that's not how gifts work. Right? Grace is a gift. So this idea that somehow we need to earn grace or accumulate grace or pay for grace is ridiculous. Ephesians 2.8, we read just a minute ago, says exactly that. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. You know something else about grace? Something else about gifts? Is that you are not entitled to a gift. It's not as if you deserve a gift because you made it another year around the sun. Or you deserve a gift because it happens to be December 25th. No, no gifts have no sense of entitlement whatsoever. They're given simply out of the, the goodness and free heart of the person who's giving it. Grace is an absolute, no-strings-attached gift of God. And what is that gift that God gives you? The gracious gift that God gives you is His own power to transform your life. Grace is God's power to transform sinners like you and like me. That's what the gift is. That you don't have to live the life you're currently living. God can change your heart. You can't do it on your own. You can't earn that gift. But God can transform that heart. Ephesians 2, 1 and 2 says just that. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. When I read this verse, I, I was drawn to that phrase, the prince of the power of the air. Do you know who that is when they talk about the prince of the power of the air? Anybody know? It's Satan. It's the devil, right? This is who you were following. And this idea that he's a prince of the power of the air. Don't miss the, the air. He is literally where the air is. That's his domain. So by the way, are you breathing this morning? You are breathing in air this morning. You are breathing in the domain of the prince of the power of the air. doesn't mean he's in you. It means he's everywhere, right? And you were, you were this follower of him, it says. You followed the prince of the power of the air. Everywhere he went, you went. Everywhere there is air, you sinned. Everywhere that you existed, you were fighting against God's goodness. He's all around us. And we were by nature objects of wrath. Verse 4, the two most powerful words in all of Scripture. Verse 4 says, But God, in spite of the fact that we were rebellious and following the prince of the power of the air, the devil himself running away from God's goodness towards us, in spite of that, God intervened. Now, there are a lot of people who believe the main problem with the lost world is that they just don't know Christ. If they intellectually could hear the gospel and understand how the gospel works, if we could just tell them the words of the gospel and they could hear the words of the gospel, they would know it and their lives would be different. But what we find in Ephesians chapter 4 is 
is ignorance is a problem, but it's not our main problem. It's not your main problem. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18 says this, Now I say, and I testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds intellectually. They're darkened in their understanding. They're alienated from a life of God uh, because of the ignorance that is in them. It's a problem, but it's not the main problem. They're ignorant due to the hardness of their hearts. The issue isn't that we know the gospel. The issue is that our hearts are so hardened, we reject God's grace. It's not about the knowledge. It's not about whether we understand what the Bible says. It's about whether or not we allow God's grace to penetrate our hard and sinful hearts. We don't need to know what grace is. We need to experience God's grace in our lives. We don't need to know that God can save you. We need to allow God to save us. We don't need to intellectually read the Bible. We need to live out what the Bible says. It's not just our knowledge. Grace is applied to us when we, when we receive it as a free gift to change our hardened hearts and soften them and make them follow Christ. God's grace is, is given to us in such a way that we do nothing for it. What I've found is, is that what God is so gracious to us is, is, is that he doesn't yell and scream and bite our heads off. We come to him in our filth and sin, and instead of God saying, how dare you, he says, let me save you. That's what grace is. Grace, then, is God's disposition, his attitude toward sinful people. Grace is our response God's response to us in the middle of our rebellion. Grace is when we're following the prince of darkness. God still loves us. When we're steeped in our sin, God still yearns for us. Grace is that God cares about us in spite of the fact that we don't deserve to be cared about. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5 has that famous phrase, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Despite the fact that we're wretched, sinful people, God loves us. His disposition towards us is to save us, not to condemn us. Grace grace is not just an attitude that God has. It's not as if God looks down and pities us. No, grace is is expensive. God actively pursues us through the sacrifice of his own son. When we understand the weight of our sinfulness and our wickedness, those first three verses of Ephesians chapter 2, when we understand we're following the, the prince of darkness, the, the power of the air, when we understand how horrible our sin is, grace explodes. You see, we tend to think of sin like a bungee cord. We, we take the dive, and we fall, and it's horrible, but we always get yanked back up, right? If, eventually, if you just jump, things are going to turn out okay. But sin is not like a bungee cord. Sin is like gravity. You take the leap, and you fall, and you hit, and you smash. It's not as if we can go through our lives sinning and coming back and sinning and coming back. No, sin just pulls us down. But God who is rich in mercy, gives us grace. We often misunderstand and abuse grace as something we can use as a weapon. 
in our sin, we can continue sinning and say, but God loves me anyway, so I can keep sinning. As if we use grace as some powerful chip or tool to get away with what we want. But, but grace is not a substance that can be used. You can't have grace here and grace there. Either God is gracious or he's not. If you're a Seinfeld fan, you understand what Elaine was talking about when they told her you can't have a little grace, right? There's not a little grace. You either have grace or you don't. Either you have received God's gracious love or you have rejected God's love. Typically, Protestants don't buy into this idea of using grace. That's kind of the the Catholic Church's problem in the 1500s was that they were trying to sell God's grace. They called them indulgences. If you paid enough money, you could buy God's grace in your life. You didn't have to pay for your sins. If you spend the money, you get forgiven. We don't typically buy into this, but we often think like this. We often think that we can use God in certain scenarios and situations. I can get away with it because I know God's going to forgive me anyways. When we ask for grace, we literally ask for God. Lord, I need your love and your acceptance. We're not asking for just forgiveness. We're asking for a right relationship. When we say, God, give me grace, we're literally saying, God, be true to the promise that you love me. So that's what grace is. Not something we can hold, but something we're given to bring us in a right standing with God. That's all great, but that means nothing if we don't know how to live that out in our everyday lives. So I want to close this morning by looking at four ways that we can actively live in light of the fact that God is gracious. These are your blanks in your bulletin if you're following along. Four ways that we can actively live out God's grace in our lives. First, we need to experience God's tangible grace. Experience God's tangible grace. Here's what I mean by that. God has been gracious to you in ways that you can see and touch and feel. And you need to recognize God's graciousness to you. Let me share with you three ways that God is gracious to you in a tangible way that you can see and touch and feel. One is through his word. God did not leave us blind in this world. God has given us his very words that we can read and study and know. You can hold it in your hand. And you never have to wonder, what is God like? You never have to wonder, does God really care for me? You never have to wonder, is God really good to me? He's given us his very words, perfect truth to reveal himself to us. Secondly, we we experience God's grace through our prayer lives. Can you imagine, just fathom for just a minute, that you have the ability to talk to the creator of the universe at any time and at any place? Right here in the middle of my sermon, you can take a break if you'd like to. Stop and just say, God, you're gracious to me and you're good. Wherever, you could drive down the road. Keep your eyes open if you do that in prayer. You can be driving down the road. Lord, you are amazing. God, you have given me so much. You can have an issue and a problem any moment of the day and you can just stop what you're doing and say, God, I need to tell you about my struggle. God is available at all times. Do we abuse this grace? The fact that God allows us his ear. We can talk to him at any moment, at any time. God's goodness and graciousness to us. Do we abuse that or do we spend time taking advantage of that? Lord, I'm praying to you because you're there. Thirdly, and this is a big one for me right now. 
God has given us tangible grace that we can see, feel, and touch in community, in the church. The church is often taken so lightly. Church is not a place where we group together. That's not what church is. Church is not a social gathering so we can see our friends, although we get to do those things. Church is not a a club that we join with perks and benefits. No, church is the very way that God gave us to grow in our faith with other believers in Christ. We don't opt into church. It's not like we just decide we'll, we'll be a part of the church. No, this was God's design for his people. It wasn't our idea. It was God's idea. We didn't opt in, and therefore you don't have a way that you can opt out. You don't have, as a Christian, the option to just say, I think I'll skip church. Church is God's grace to us, our community to us. We can gather with brothers and sisters in Christ. I've been waiting and praying for the right moment to to say this. And, And I think the moment has been right all along, but it needs to be continually reminded to us. During 2020, in the midst of a worldwide pandemic, it is perfectly acceptable for those who are health compromised, for those who who are ill, for those who are taking precautions wisely and medically to watch the live stream at home. That is what they should be doing. It's perfectly acceptable for there there to be some who decide to watch the service uh, at home or downstairs in the fellowship hall or separate, and that's okay. In this place and time, that's how your community is functioning. But I know, because I've, I've seen it, there are people who use that as an excuse. It, it's not that you are health compromised, it's that it's too easy to watch in your pajamas. Or it's too easy to turn on the music and turn off the message. Or to turn on the message and turn off the music. Or to catch the pieces that you want. It's too easy to do it at home. And can I tell you, this morning, if you don't have a health wise reason to stay at home and distance you need to be in community with your church this is not something that we can we can just choose to do god says i've given you this gift your brothers and your sisters in christ don't take advantage of it experience god's tangible grace his word your prayer life this community our church Secondly, how do we experience God's grace? Well, rely on God's gracious gracious disposition toward you. Remind yourself that God cares about you. Let let me put this in the easiest way I can. If you're a believer in Christ, you genuinely have said, God, I need your grace. Stop beating yourself up. Stop thinking you're not worthy. The truth is you weren't worthy, but God who is rich in mercy, has made you alive in Christ. The Puritans who came to our country and and were formative of, of starting the United States of America before there even was a United States of America called these things hard thoughts. Times in their lives that they would just beat themselves up and say, how wretched and sinful I am. This idea that, that they had to be a certain way for God to really love them or accept them that they had to do the right things to experience God's grace and God's love. These hard thoughts that you and I still struggle with. God, I'm not good enough. I don't do the right things. I love this quote by Charles Spurgeon. He says, if seven times a day we offend him and repent, does he forgive? Ah, that he does. 
Now listen to this. He says, God is more ready to forgive me than I am ready to sin. I love that. But what I find is I don't, I don't have to actively pursue sin. I fall into sin. I actively do things, but, but it's just, if I let my, my nature take over, I naturally gravitate towards selfishness and doing what I want. I don't have to put any effort at all to act sinfully. But God actively pursued a gracious redemption. God actively forgives. He is more ready to forgive you than you are ready to sin. So rely on God's gracious disposition. Remind yourself that God cares and loves about you as a believer in Christ. Thirdly, embrace Jesus as the embodiment of God's grace. We see a picture of exactly what grace is. You can jot down Titus chapter 2, verse 11. It says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to people. Let me tell you that grace that has appeared is Christ. When Christ was born, he was the, the tangible human being living embodiment of God's grace. He is exactly what God wants to reveal to us about his grace. And Jesus did not come because God pitied us. It's not like he came down to earth and said, hey God, maybe we should do something about this. Now that I'm here, I see the problem. No, the Father desired to save us, desired to save you, cares so much about you that he sent his Son. Grace is a free gift to you, but it is not a free gift from God. He paid for that with the death of his own son. The greatest way you can experience God's grace is to say, I need less of me and more of Christ. I need to stop trusting in my own way of living, and I need to follow Christ. I need to do what he says and live the way he's called me to live. Jesus Christ, I need you to forgive me for my sins. And finally, to live out grace, we can carry God's grace wherever we go. Carry God's grace wherever you go. Here's what I mean by that. Verse 10 that we read earlier of Ephesians chapter 2 says, We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. This word workmanship here is often translated poem. You are literally God's handiwork, His poem. It's what He has written beautifully and wonderfully. We are prepared for a purpose and for a reason. We are prepared to carry God's grace with us and live in that grace. To believe that we are saved by grace alone is to believe that God has called us to take His grace everywhere. That's what everything about our faith revolves around. God's grace. God is not opposed to, to our hard work. As a matter of fact, it calls us to work hard God is not opposed to anything in your life. Grace is only opposed to sin. And that's why redemption goes everywhere grace goes, everywhere you go. We carry that message of grace that God is love and caring and forgiving if we would just embrace this free gift. Who have you shared God's grace with recently? Who will you share God's grace with soon? As we wrap up this morning, I want to ask ourselves a question. Have you experienced God's grace? Do you understand that God cares and loves for you, loves you? That He wants to save you and forgive you of your sins. 
And are you living in light of the fact that God, God died for you? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we are saved not based on our works or what we do, but we're saved through your great gift of grace. Or this idea that we can earn or do something for our salvation is, is depressing because we will never do enough. So, Father, I thank you that this is a free gift. This idea that you would look at us as sinful human beings and love us anyways, Father, we pray that we would, we would live that out. Lord, let us see tangible ways that we can do that through reading your word, through talking to you in prayer, through gathering together in community. Lord, let us, let us embrace that to change our hearts and our lives. Lord, let it not just be what we think about and know, but Lord, let it be what's in our hearts. Lord, we pray that we would live every day not beating ourselves up for our sin, but thanking you that you've forgiven us. And Lord, then let us carry out that salvation, that grace everywhere we go. Father, we love you and we thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.